I like the new music, by the way. Welcome to the Recovery Lab podcast. We are glad you are able to join us. Recovery Lab hopes to destigmatize addiction and normalize recovery. Our platform provides an avenue to share the many stories of those that have recovered from addiction, providing for the listener that most basic antidote to addiction. Hope. All right, everybody, we're back. I think that I have successfully followed Daniel's instructions for how to do all of the uh, many things that he does that I take for granted. So thank you, Daniel, for that, all of your help, all of your influence with the technology. So uh, I I don't even know which episode this is. I think it's 39, maybe even 40. That's hard to believe. Um, Okay. Just won't move a whole lot. That's why I scooted back. <laughs> okay, you got to be a lot closer. Okay. Let's see. Like, you got to be afraid that Mike's going to give you COVID. Is that better? That's much better. Okay. Yeah. All right. All right, everybody. We're joined today by Ann Lynn Witt, who uh, is uh, an original supporter of the podcast. Maybe one of the first five hoodies bought was bought by you. Really? Absolutely. Ann is the cause for a number of people buying hoodies, so we thank you for that. You guys do good work. Well, I'm glad to support. And we're neighbors. Yes. We live right around the corner from each yes. other. I see her from time to time in that, that Volkswagen Beetle. Betty the Bug. Betty the Bug. If my kids were around, I'd probably, you know, they're all about that punch buggy business. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Well, you know what? They need to go ride with the top down. Yeah. I'll take them further up. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. They'll be all about that. Oh, absolutely. I love it. I love it. That's one of the gifts of sobriety, too. Is the Betty the Beetle, the Betty the Bug, I think I need to turn mine down a little bit. Is yours loud in your ear? Testing. Um, I don't know. I'm a pretty loud person anyway. <laughs> so. Let me see. If, is I that feel the, like we're talking. So. Sounds good to me. I better. Hello? Oh, no. Now I can't hear it at all. Oh, I hear you very well. Yeah. I wonder if I. What about now? Yeah. You can hear it. I can hear you very well. It's like it's like we're having a conversation just like we were before. But you're hearing it through the mic. I'm hearing it here. Daniel, where are you? <laughs> Did you just go down? Oh, I wonder if I disconnected. You can hear it in here, but I can't hear it through here. Can you hear me? Can yeah. you hear me through there? Yeah, I can hear you. I'm not going to touch a thing. <laughs> Is that, there we go. I hit that okay. green button right there. Okay. I was about to panic. Because <laughs> there's no, Daniel didn't give me a video for how to fix that. Oh, I'm hot now. Okay. All right. Without further ado, so tell us a little bit about, give us a little history. How did you get to, to be a drug addict or alcoholic or whatever? So, um, I mean, Lynn, I'm an alcoholic. Um, and, uh, whew, 
You know, it's interesting because um, until I started this most recent journey, because like many others, I've been in and out of the rooms of AA for quite some time and trying to get sober. But until this most recent, um, until my most recent effort to get sober and I have stayed sober this time, I didn't realize that when I was about my earliest memory of having alcohol, I was about eight years old. And my um, family, after Thanksgiving, we used to get we used to get to drink out of the little brandy sniffers at Thanksgiving. And it was Lancer's wine, which is my what my great aunt Ola drank. And um, Ola. That's Ola. A good, that's a good southern name. Isn't that a good southern name? And uh and I love my Aunt Ola. Um, I still miss her to this day. She passed away when I was 16. Um, but um, we would be around the table at Aunt Ola's house, and Elsie and Maddie would always be there, her um, her helpers. And um, at the end of dinner, they would pour the wine, and everybody got a glass, even my brothers and sisters, and or brother and sister. I'm a middle child. And, um, and so that was my – that's – what I've discovered recently was my most early memory of having alcohol. Um, and so... Did you have enough that you were affected by it? Or you just remember... I just remember... I don't think the so. The distinct yeah. characteristics of alcohol. You know, it burns, it tastes funny, and all that. Uh, no, I liked it. Okay. I was grown up. I got to be part of the grown-ups. But I think um, the reason for me talking about having it when I was about eight years old at Ola's house is how normal alcohol is during a holiday um, and uh, and around adults and that sort of thing um, for kids. You know, as my, it was just, that was what we did. And, um, and I don't hold any ill will or anything like that because that was, you know, that was just part of the Thanksgiving. And, um, and so that was my first recollection of having alcohol. Um, I didn't like start drinking, drinking until I was probably about 15. And I remember that I had two beers in Destin, Florida, um, out on the beach. Um, and, um, and that hit me and I liked it. I liked it a lot. Um, I did not, but that was more of a rebellion, as a teenager, and um, and so I would continue. I grew up in a small town. Where'd you grow up? I grew up. Oh, and I'm repping the Delta today. Well, I want. I was going to ask you because I'm from Yazoo City. So I'm from Clarksdale okay. originally. My dad, um, my dad was an Episcopal priest, and so we moved around. Um, and I claim Coleman, Alabama, and Clarksdale as my grow up towns. As where I'm from, but Clarksdale's really where I'm from. We moved there when I was um, the summer of fourth grade, going into fifth grade, and um, and there's nothing to do if you're from Yazoo City. You know, there's nothing to do uh, but ride around in cotton fields, have bonfires, and drink. Yeah, I'm familiar. Yeah, and um, and so that's what we did um, as teenagers, and. I uh, I really bought into that middle child. I'm the rebellious one. You know, my brother was the athlete. My sister was the sweet, quiet. Everybody loves, um, uh, and no reason not to. Everybody loves my sister. And um, she was the sweet, quiet one. And I was like, oh, 
balls to the wall, let's go, Mm -hmm. (laughs) y'all. And so, um, you know, I was always the party, the party girl. And, um, and so growing up, like go doing that, um, it never was like a problem because everybody was doing it. Right. Um, and then, uh, um, and I can talk a lot about, um, kind of things that went, went on in my household. I, I come from an alcoholic family and, and now that I'm sober and I've dug into kind of my background, I realize I'm a good fourth or fifth generation alcoholic. Um, and some of my relatives have mixed drugs in there, um, mainly pain pills and things like that. Um, I never took on, um, pills or anything. It's been pretty much strictly alcohol. And, um, and so, um, it was just kind of the party girl thing. I graduated ninth in my class, never affected me academically, um, but growing up in an alcoholic home, by the time I was a senior, I was ready to get the hell out of Clarksdale. You know, I was tired of small town. I was tired of people gossiping about everybody and didn't realize that, you know, that happens everywhere. Sure. Doesn't matter where you grow up. That happens everywhere. And so I went to the University of Alabama, which at the time was the number two party school in the nation. And, and Tuscaloosa was very proud of that, um, of that they award. probably still are. Well, yeah, <laughs> that, I think they definitely are. Um, love Tuscaloosa. It's it's kind of my second home um, because when I went to college at University of Alabama, I stayed there for about eleven years. And, oh wow! Yeah, <laughs> um, but it was my at the time, you know, eighteen years old. I was pulling a geographic. Right. I had no clue, but that's what I did. I pulled a geographic. Um, thinking that a new place, many more people would um, solve my problems with being lonely, feeling like I didn't belong, and um, and that sort of thing. Which I think um, I think a lot of alcoholics and and addicts we have that feeling early on. We we turn into chameleons. Whatever you know our friends or our acquaintances are doing, that's what we're going to do. And we're going to, we're going to, um, and I was good at being that chameleon, but leading the pack of chameleons, you know? And, um, and so I went to Tuscaloosa, um, uh, had a rough year, my sophomore year, because I was drinking and partying so much. And, um, and, but I ended up, um, pulling that together and then, um, graduating with honors in um in social work and um and then landed a job in Tuscaloosa and stayed there um, doing social work doing social work I was a public health social worker and um and by the time I got a job I had to get a little bit more responsible and uh, Mike's husband and I lived together at the time we weren't married just yet but we lived together at the time and he worked restaurants, which I did all the way through college. And if you've ever worked a restaurant, you know that it's just a petri dish for drugs and alcohol. Um, and um, and so there was, I would work double shifts, sixteen hours a day um, during college on my days off of um, school. Uh, we we talked to Allison. Know we brought that up. You know, she's from the restaurant world. Yeah, and was on a couple weeks ago. And there really is something to the restaurant subculture. Yeah, there really is. And, and I've talked to a lot of different people that, um, that would do like what I did in college and bartend. And then, 
you know, you get off at midnight and you go out to party. Look, so I, I said this exact same thing to her about when I moved to Jackson and I met, I got some friends, you know, young friends in, in recovery and a lot of them worked in restaurants and I learned pretty quickly, like they're their own world. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they operate in hours that nobody else does. They always have cash or none at all. Uh, they tend to live together. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you know, restaurant people hang out with restaurant people yep. and do restaurant people things. You know, there are bars that cater to them because they stay open later. And, you know, that and that, fr- that fry cook's always got the connection. Well, you didn't do drugs, but. Uh, no, but um, I'll never forget once. I worked at Logan's. Um, you know, the Is that where you, house. can you throw peanuts on the floor? Yes. Yeah. Where you can throw peanuts. And I bartended and that's how I met my ex-husband working at Logan's. And, um, and so <laughs> I'll never forget, um, I'd smashed my hand in the ice maker one Mm-mm. day. Um, one of those big industrial ones. Trying to get that work comp claim. And, yeah. <laughs> and, um, and this gal that that was a much older gal, um, but um, she said, here, I got something for you. Doesn't she? And she, she sure did. did. She sure did, and I'll never forget that. They, uh, because my hand, because I couldn't move my left hand, they put me in the back of the house to, you know, do the rolls and uh, do the things that I could do and pulled me off the tables. I was high AF mm-hmm. doing all that. Uh, had no clue what she gave me. Um, now I know it was probably a lore tab or, or something like that, but, um, but you know, it is, it's its own, um, culture and, um, and nobody thought, even the managers didn't think twice about, um, this gal giving me something so that my hand didn't hurt. Look, <laughs> and it didn't I hurt. have, I have <laughs> seen lines of cocaine on the bar at Walker so long that it would it'd blow your mind. Yeah. Oh yeah. I believe it. I believe it. So, um, so anyway, that you know, it was just normal. What I was doing, partying and drinking all the time, um, was just normal. Sure. And interesting, interestingly, we never really drank. Like as a bartender, I never drank with the customers or anything like that. Um, and it was always after the shift. It was always after the shift. And uh, but I mean, there would be numerous times where I was supposed to open the restaurant, and I'd get a phone call you know, an hour where after. Where are you? Where are you? Yep. Yep. On a Sunday morning, usually. Yeah. And, um, and then would go in probably still smelling like, well, I know I was still smelling like the night before and still had all the stamps from the bars and all that other kind of good stuff. Well, look, when you started doing social work, what, tell me a little bit about that. So, um, I went, I actually went to Alabama because they had a four year nursing program and I was going to be a nurse. Um, and I said I had a hard time in my sophomore year. I had biology. I had an A and P. And I quickly, quickly discovered that I was no good at naming, you know, dissecting cats and naming veins and naming, naming all the different stuff. Um, it's just not how my brain works. Um, and I liked my psychology class, so I thought, eh, I'll change to psychology. This isn't so bad. Yeah, this isn't so bad. I can do this part. And and. I really gravitated to the the human, um, just the sociology and the anthropology classes that I was taking as electives and things like that. Well, then I realized that the soft sciences, yeah, the soft sciences and uh, and the brain sciences. I was fa- and I'm still fascinated with the way the brain works. 
Um, and, um, and that's actually been a huge part of my recovery is understanding how my brain works. Um, but, um, yeah, that seems to have been a big shift since the, when I first, the first time when I tried to get sober when I was like 19, Yeah, there's a lot more talk about how the brain reacts to things and maybe science has just learned more in general. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. But, but how, you know, dopamine receptors work and you hear a lot more about that. Well, in speaking about the dopamine respect receptors work and, you know, looking back in my college years, I was always chasing that dopamine high. Weren't you? Whether it was alcohol or like guys paying attention to me or people knowing that, you know, me wanting to be the best in the room, whether that was the prettiest or the most drunk and funniest or whatever, um, that was that high I was chasing. Um, was that that dopamine high, especially of affirmation and validation, right? So I never, and and I think a lot of people that have grown up in alcoholic homes will tell you that um, that there was an inconsistency in any kind of affirmation and validation. Um, uh, that what I see from my normie friends, you know, they just got all the time. But there's an inconsistency that I recognize that, has operated in other adult children of alcoholics that um, we share in common. Are either of your siblings, do they have addiction problems? Both of them do, yeah. Okay, well, got all three of you. I shouldn't say both of them do. Um, my brother quit drinking when he was in college altogether. Um, and just on his own. Just on his own. Just on his own. And my sister is about, I think, eight years sober now about eight or nine years sober. I can't remember her actual date, um, but she went to Pine Grove and was there for a good three months or so, and she's stayed sober ever since. Well, good for her. Proud of her. Yeah, I'm sorry. She's she's a good role model for me, and and, and she's one of the ones. I may get a little emotional here. But she's you know, probably we keep saying that we're going to bring Kleenex in here, but we never do. I'm going to donate some Kleenex to you. Okay. I'll send it, like, Amazon. Um, but yeah, um, she, in my worst days over the past couple of years, she's been the one that said, we want you better, but I'm here for you. Um, and just without judgment, you know, she's always been there. So, um, and then, uh, my mom is, uh, 16 years sober. Go and, mom. Yeah, mom. And I can always remember her date because her sobriety date is my birthday. Um, and there's a whole story around that. It was too. popping off at your birthday party, wasn't it? Ooh. Um, well, no, it wasn't popping off at my birthday party. Somebody found her. Um, she was unresponsive in her oh, own no. house on my birthday, and I was six, eight months pregnant. No, seven months pregnant with my daughter at the time, and I was actually on bed rest. And um, and so mm. my sister came over. We all lived in the area at the time. My sister came over, and she said, Mom's in the hospital. And that was the last time Mom took a uh, took a sip of anything, and uh, and I'm so proud of her because she's such a supportive role um, in my family now. So, um, so that's good. But um, but back to the uh, the twenties, you know, in uh, the social work, I um, I didn't realize it at the time, but when I was going through those classes, and I just really dug into social work because I wanted to prevent problems for people. Now, subconsciously, um, I think that I wished I had somebody like that for me. And I actually started working with teenagers 
and the public health department. Um, and the program was a teen pregnancy prevention program, and I would work one-on-one with teenagers. But um, uh, what would but you, it was a prevention. Was this a... It was prevention Don't have general. sex or just knowledge of what condoms and birth control are? Well, I would work one-on-one to teen- with teenagers that would come into the health department for contraception, and we would talk about anything from um, a lot of those girls had older boyfriends that um, there was really kind of, for them, um, a sense of these boyfriends had possession of them. And so we talked, uh, we would, I would work with them on how to be independent women. Um, the schools, when I would go in to do group stuff, uh, prevention stuff, the schools wouldn't let me do anything but abs- what they call abstinence plus education, which is uh, don't have sex. And if you do, these are all the bad things that can happen to you um, type of thing. And I think we know. Oh, so the plus isn't contraception. It, the plus is consequences. The plus is uh, at the time. Now, this was uh, late 90s, early 2000s. And to be honest with you, I'm not familiar with the curriculum that they do now with Abstinence Plus. But um, but if I was at schools that would let me in to come and work with teens individually, they were always the teen moms. I wasn't allowed to work with just any teenager. And so clearly they had already had sex, you know, because they had children. And being a social worker and a case manager, um, I mean, what you do at the time is you help them with resources. And you help them not to get pregnant again and become productive adults. You know, um, and so that was kind of my role at that time. I bet you saw some heartbreaking cases, though, didn't you? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And, um, you know, it it didn't occur to me at the time but what I was trying to help some of those girls out of were toxic relationships, not realizing I was in one myself. And, um, and well, when you that said that the, about doing social work, I thought, I wonder if it stayed with her. Cause there are people that like people that social workers, uh, people that work in, I mean, what we call the youth court mm-hmm. industry. I mean, they see things that, I don't. I don't know how you. I don't know how you leave that at work. I mean, the kinds of things that stay with you. I didn't. Yeah, it stays. It stays with you forever. And um, and uh, you know, I remember in social work going into my um, field placement, which would be equivalent to somebody's clinicals or whatever. Um, going into my field placement, telling the director, I don't want to go into child protection services. I can't deal with child abuse. Let me go into preventive services. I can't tell you how much child abuse I saw in preventive services that just wasn't being reported. It wasn't recognized as quote-unquote abuse. Um, it was more neglectful type uh, uh, type stuff happening within the families. Um, but it was very much a mirror of, uh, of some of the things I went through growing up. And, um, and so, you know, it's the whole um, thought process of, of being a wounded healer. You know, but at the time, I didn't have enough uh, introspection, self-introspection to sure. know that's what I was. Well, didn't have the insight and experience no. yet to put those things together. I was together. still a kid myself. Yeah. Uh, I remember the first time I got called old, I was 24. <laughs> um, I was 24, and one of my teenagers called me old, and I was like, oh, Lord, you have no idea. <laughs> and now that I'm four, almost 47, I'm like, now I'm old. I'm going to be 47 this year. 
When's your birthday? November 5th. Okay, so I'm August 2nd. Uh, Kimberly and I were talking about this this morning, and it really is. She was like, you're almost 50. Yeah. I, I mean. Mind blown, right? Yeah. I mean, I don't feel like I got permission to be this old. Oh, I'm not an adult. I need I need yeah. a more adult adult. <laughs> yeah. It, it blows my mind. I told somebody the other day that I wanted to be them when I grew up because I do. They got all their, you know, looks their like shit together. They got, they got their shit together. <laughs> I do not have my shit together. So after you so. left Tuscaloosa, what'd you do? So I actually, I went back to grad school. Okay. While in Tuscaloosa, got my master's in social work and a dual master's in public health. Now here's where I can define my addiction. My addiction became school and overperformance. Uh. Because by the time I'd started working full-time and then going back to school and everything, I was putting too many hours, putting so many hours into that, that the most drinking I did was two or three glasses of wine at night to chill out and go to bed. And, uh, and so alcohol didn't, wasn't a problem, so to speak, in my life. I didn't know that school and work was a problem because everybody congratulates you on getting promoted, graduating with a dual master's. Holy cow, how did you do two colleges at once? And, I really have come to yeah. appreciate just how intricate and involved the avoidance mechanism is in the way that we go about our lives, drug addicts and alcoholics. Yeah. I mean, oh. the, 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 uh, the, the substance really is but just a one facet of it. Yeah. I mean, I can think of a lot of ways that I have seen people attempt to avoid whatever it is that they're trying to avoid about their current reality by working out. Mm -hmm. I mean, certainly gambling, sex. I mean, all those, everybody knows those. But yeah, yeah, I mean, workaholism is just another shade of avoidism. Yeah, it's it's the ism and um, and workaholism like working out. You know, the results are so um, outwardly positive Sure. to everybody else. Nobody sees the broken person, the broken brain. Um, nobody outwardly sees that. And But I remember being um, as miserable at, uh, at doing all of the things, the schoolwork, the success. It didn't, the, it didn't engender some sense of being fulfilled in you. No. There was, there was no fulfillment, but I sure loved those accolades. I loved those promotions. I loved those, um, oh, my God, I can't believe you do all what you do. Wow, you're such an amazing person. You know, that's what I, I craved and I went for, and so I, I, kept, I kept doing that and doing more of it, more of it, more of it. Meanwhile, I'm just... <laughs> Like I'm that, just wearing like my body cocaine out. Water, yeah, yeah. I'm just wearing my body out, uh, wearing my body out, wearing my mind out, wearing my spirit out. At the expense of those around you and your loved ones and relationships and all that. Oh yeah, I get it. Yeah. Um, so how all right? How old are you at this point, and how many do you have kids yet? So I'm I'm about 24 at this point. Um, 2003, I moved back to Mississippi because we. Because I'm married now. Okay. Got married at 24. Um, so, no, I'm about 27 when we moved to Mississippi. Got married in 2000. Moved to Mississippi in uh, 2003. And um, and my, my ex-husband, 
uh, he would always, you know, praise me on how well I was doing. And wow, I'm married to somebody that has these dual masters. So I was getting that. I was being fed uh, those accolades from him, too, where meanwhile, he was still working the restaurant industry. So we rarely saw each other. I was working nine to five. Uh, yeah. And so we rarely saw each other. And uh, and he didn't ever bring home money, <laughs> you know, because he would go out and spend it after. Absolutely, he did. After his shifts. And, uh, and so I was taking care of the rent and all the bills and everything else. Um, but we moved back to Mississippi, bought our first home. And, uh, and, you know, more so I'm becoming more and more successful. I had a state job, um, and was a good retirement with that good retirement, which I have, um, foolishly cashed out. There we go. Um, when, as things got worse and worse, I've cashed out a couple of retirements. Um, not, not the most, uh, not the best financial moves at all. Not at all. Hang on to (laughs) that retirement, (laughs) y'all. That purse is good. (laughs) That purse is good. And I'm 47 and I have no clue when I'm going to be able to retire. I feel you. (laughs) It's all right. We'll figure it out. No, I, Hey, it's all good. It's all good. So, um, were you living in Jackson? I was living in Northeast Jackson. Okay. Um, kind of right behind, um, used to be, shoot, what's that church? I was off old Canton road. Um, over in Northeast Jackson, bought our first house. St. Phillips. Not St. Phillips, but down from there. Okay. I think it was Christ United at the Christ time. Christ United. Yeah. yeah. Christ United was directly across from St. Phillips, and now they're just down the street. Yeah. So, um, and so it was down towards the new Christ United okay. is, is where we live, bought our first house, you know, looking like the picture of young success. Um, and everything's fallen into place. Everything's fallen into place. And we started trying to have a family. And, um, that's when I experienced, um, a miscarriage. Um, and we had already seen the baby's heartbeat. You know, we had already, I'd already had hopes and dreams and she was going to graduate top of her class. And you went straight for it. It went. Yeah. Oh yeah. And, um, and then at 12 weeks I went in for a checkup and there was no heartbeat and, um, and it was devastating. Yeah. It was devastating. And so many well-intentioned, um, people would say things, well, God has a plan and I know God has a plan, but when you're grieving the loss of a child, because that's what that was to me, you're, you're grieving hopes and dreams and, um, and all I wanted to be. People would ask me when I was younger, what do you want to do when you grow up? I had no clue. Literally still don't have any clue. I just want to be a good mom. That's yeah. all I wanted to be. I wanted to be a mom. And But after that loss, um, I, uh, my husband and I started uh, partying a lot in Northeast Jackson. We found, we found our crew, <laughs> you know, and, um, and, and I would drink a lot all the time. Um, and um, just out of grief and out of nothing else to do. And um, and it never impacted it never impacted my work or anything at the time that I can remember. Let me put it that way. Sure. Um, because I'm sure there were plenty of days I was miserable sitting at my computer. Um, but uh, but he was right along the ride with me. And um, and what I see now, um, based on what it was then, what I see now is I was just perpetuating a cycle of what my parents had modeled for me. And, um, 
And and I'm actually pretty grateful for that these days. Um, didn't see it at the time, but uh, but Mike's husband and I were in a we were in a really toxic um, cycle, basically. And um, now by the time I'm 29, uh, I now have a new baby. Katrina hit huge, um, and I'll and I'll never well, there's forget. There's nothing to do when there's no power. Well, I he was Jack, my oldest, was three months old when Katrina hit. Oh, okay. And so I was nursing a baby when it was hot as sin, and we were both dehydrated, and oh, it, gosh, it was miserable. After a couple of days of being without power and when the trees kind of got cleared off and everything, um, we went over to my sister's. My sister lived across the res, and uh, we went over to my sister's um, because they got power turned on. They live right across from the from the fire station. Mm. And um, and so we lived with her until we had power again. Um, but yeah, that was, um, you know, that was all really, that really affected me. Um, I still wasn't drinking. And once I had the baby, when I was pregnant, I didn't drink. When I had the baby, I didn't drink. Um, what do you mean that affected you? Like some sort of sense of mama bear protectionism, like the storm came from my baby, that kind of thing. Yeah, or, okay. and and my nephew, my sister had had a baby. Um, let's see, my nephew and Jack are about sixteen months apart, and um, and so I was very protect, and I was protected over protective over my sister, and um, and so I would go, I went over, we went over to their house, and I started just pulling things out of the freezer and cooking them, cooking everything she had gas stove. And um, and I'll never forget, we had Braden, my nephew, in the high chair, and I had made some broccoli and cheese, and I put some on his little tray and everything, and he was just devouring it. And she goes, oh, my God, he's so hungry. I haven't fed him enough, and he's so hungry. He's eating broccoli. Mm. But that was Mama Bear coming out in me, and my sister needed me to protect her. My nephew needed me to protect him, and... Um, and my brother-in-law didn't need a, uh, a lot of protection, but he and my husband, um, you know, basically sat and drank the time we didn't have any power and, you know, when everything was shut down sure. after Katrina. So they had a good old time, and my sister and I had a good old time because we were we were playing mama, and uh, and that's what I wanted to do. And so the next, I mean, I look at the next... 12, 13 years, the, uh, I definitely drank alcoholically, but it was on girls weekends. Um, it was, it was sporadic, very sporadic. And I would, uh, me and my college roommates would go on a girls weekend, either with or without the kids. If we, um, I brought babysitters with me and, and we would just go to town, you know, but all of us were doing it. Because we needed that break, right? right. We had been super moms, and um, and so I really um, work was fine, family was fine, my marriage was not fine for a very long time, um, and I know that now. But um, but everything else seemed okay. Um, there weren't really any consequences of my drinking because it was binge and it was once every three months, that sort of thing. But there were definitely consequences of how much I worked and how much I traveled. Well, you didn't need to drink, and you had these other things yeah. to distract you. Yeah, I had tons of distractions, uh, and especially when um, 
especially I was traveling a lot with work. I would go to D.C. a lot because I ran grants um, for both the state and then later for a nonprofit. And I was always on the road. And um, and that gave me a, f- a sense of fulfillment because just like pulling a geographic, I would get to escape for a few days and then come home and be the hero. Right. You know? Mommy's doing this. Uh-huh. You know. Mommy's, mommy's doing, doing the Lord's work. And mommy's doing great work, working, you know, serving the people. Right. Serving the people of Mississippi. And Well, um, and it certainly sounds sophisticated. Mommy's going to Washington, D.C. to get grant money for. Yeah underprivileged whoever's yes and i worked in the delta for a really long time um and i would well drive. there's certainly plenty of under underserved people there i would drive back and forth to leland so um yeah with these three and by this time i had uh, well i had two young children um and uh, because after my miscarriage it took us a couple of years to get pregnant with jack and we actually had to do fertility treatments and stuff so when I got pregnant with my daughter, she was completely unexpected. She knows this. Um, and, uh, and what a great surprise. Um, interestingly, this is one of those interesting things that I look back on now. When we found out um, I was pregnant with my daughter, I actually didn't tell my husband for two days because I knew he would freak out because um, I had a nine-month-old at home. And, um, and he did. He absolutely freaked out. And before we even had the first ultrasound, he's like, I'm getting a vasectomy. You know, he didn't want he didn't want what I wanted, which was a big family. Right. And um uh, by did, the dozen. Yeah. And I and and that was something that I always thought we were on the same page about. And um and apparently we weren't, but he didn't get the vasectomy and I now have a third kid. Um <laughs> But um, but during this whole time, I was all about being the mom and doing all the things, the, the room parent. Um, and I'm noticing um, with my two babies, I'm noticing that my son is lagging in his development. And I got dismissed a lot um, by doctors, by my ex-husband, by my own family, you know, saying, oh, he's just fine. He's just fine. And, um, but I'd been, I grew up babysitting and stuff. So I knew that something just wasn't quite right, especially when he and my daughter started talking at the same time. You know, he's technically met that milestone of talking by the age of three, which is what the American Academy of Pediatrics says, as long as they're talking by the age of three and that they're bonded to their caregiver, which he was bonded to me and several others. Um, but he, he would grunt and point and he wasn't as joyful as you see most kids. And, and I would notice that and I would bring it up to the pediatrician. I would bring it up to, um, my husband at the time and I was dismissed as being helicopter mom, overreactive, um, that sort of thing. But what I could tell was that my daughter was, um, developing very regularly and actually excelling. And I mean, cause she came out of the womb talking and she hadn't quit yet. Sure. And, you know, she's 16. As a matter of fact, I got a FaceTime from her on the way over here. <laughs> so, but, um, but anyway, so that dismissal of my mom gut instinct, that's where I started feeling sense of failure. 
and that gives you a little. There's a common thread so yeah. far to your story that got to be a lot of pressure you feel. Oh, I about put it on ev- myself. Though. Yeah, yeah, I put it on myself though. Um, you know, um, I never had anybody saying you have to get two masters. I mean, literally, when I went into the dual degree program. Uh, my friend Adam and I were in this Masters of Social Work program together, and we had known each other from camp when we were tykes. And uh, he said, you know, I'm going to do it. You should do it, too. I was like, oh, all right. <laughs> like, literally, Well, if Adam's going to do it. If Adam's going to do it, I can't let him show me up. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and so um, that's literally how I got two Masters. Same thing happened with my doctorate. I had a mentor say, you really need to do this program. I was like, okay, I'll do it. And that's how I got my doctorate. You have a PhD too. I do, in healthcare administration. It's actually a doctorate in healthcare administration, not a PhD. It's a a practical degree versus a philosophical one. Okay. Um, Glad we got that cleared up. Well, it's, you know. Um, the funny thing is my daughter's cheer coach told her the other day, um, she's had a back injury and he said, your mom's not a doctor. And, uh, I said, you go back and tell him I am, <laughs> I am too a doctor. I'm not the one that can give out meds though. Right. So, um, but yeah, um, so there was this sense of failure with my oldest, my precious, precious rainbow baby. Right. And so there, it, and this was, he was only three, um, but I was already having this. What is it failure. about drug addicts and alcoholics that view everything as some personal failure? Like, I think it's the yeah. flip side of the coin of being selfish in the traditional sense that we, we are selfish people. I think the self-centered nature of the way that we view the world tends to think that, well, if I have perceived or been involved in this, you know, mal of mm-hmm. some kind then obviously it is a shortcoming of my own it's making my fault. it's my fault it's my fault my kids if i had different. only why didn't i just yeah. i should have why why did i why did i my because i remember my doctor's telling me she said what do you think about coming out because at this point all right so in college i was uh diagnosed with depression okay okay which i actually had been diagnosed in my teens I didn't really know that, um, but I was in Zoloft. I was on Zoloft um, from the time I was sixteen to about twenty. When I was twenty, um, I was having a lot of mental health issues. My roommate, who is still my best friend, to she's my she's my Louise to my Thelma. Your she's, homie. She's my ride or die, and and she got up in my face one day and she said, "You need help. You've got something going on." And I was, I was diagnosed with depression when I was in my twenties. Um, and so when I was pregnant with Jack, my, uh, OBGYN said, um, why don't you come off of your antidepressants during your third trimester because it could affect the baby. And I was like, nope, not going to do that. Yeah. Not going to do that because, because I knew what, what I was like when I was depressed and I couldn't do, I couldn't be. I needed these meds because I couldn't be depressed because if I was depressed, then I couldn't be super woman at work while still pregnant. And when I was pregnant with him, I was actually in labor finishing up uh, grant reports for the year before he was born. Um, uh, I remember waking up in the middle of the night and I had this huge report due. It was a five-year needs assessment and I needed to get it off before I had the baby 
And so I just went to the computer and started working, feeling like crap. I mean, I hurt all over. I didn't know what was wrong. I was in active labor. Um, and took all tough the, it out, though. I was going to tough it out, and I took the <laughs> floppy disk. Yeah, you did. Yeah, I did. Up to my boss and said, here you go. It's all ready to go. Uh, when it's due next month, y'all make sure and review it. I've got a doctor's appointment. I Look, think I'm going to be having this you, baby You'll soon. appreciate this story. <laughs> One time, my roommate, we needed to print a paper that either he or I had written. I don't remember. And we went to the computer lab at Millsaps, and there was a guy there who knew how to get the document off the floppy and attach it to an email. Oh. <gasps> And, I mean, we looked at him with wonder and amazement. I mean, he might as well have been a, a bona fide computer hacker as far as we were concerned. Oh, wow. I mean, this is when they still had terminals, you yeah. know, like DOS terminals that uh -huh. you had to log in. And your email was, you know, like war games. Yeah. You know, that kind of. Yeah. yeah. Oregon Trail stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. That's exactly yeah, that's how it was. Um and 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 I was progressive because I had a computer at home. Big doings. That was uh, it definitely contributed to my workaholism, and uh, because that was the addiction, work was always there. And right? you could print those awesome happy birthday banners. Oh yes, they were like <laughs> the that big one, yeah. long. They were that long, and you had to tear off. And God forbid you actually. <laughs> And heaven forbid you actually tear the paper when you tore the. You know, you know you're going to do it. Yep, yep. Um, All right, so you've got three kids, uh, two masters, uh, not a PhD, but a doctorate, uh, do mm, a doctorate. something D. Yeah, and it's a DHA. DHA. It? You're yeah. living in Jackson. Yep. So had so we're like in what 2008 2009. So 2010 is 2010. when my third kid was born. Okay. Um, when he was born, we're, we're at 2010 now. And, um, and so after he was born, we, I mean, things are still s smooth sailing. Um, so this is interesting too. I would find myself, if I got unhappy with work and felt like I was failing, I would feel like people were coming after me and I'd start looking for other work. And so I, at the longest, uh, the longest job I had was I was working in the Delta at the time when I was pregnant with my son, my uh, youngest, um, who, by the way, says this is sponsored by Goldfish today. Okay. He, he brought me some Goldfish to eat in the car. The while crackers? Was, yeah. 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 Um, and so <laughs> he's a rot. Um, and so anyway, um, I was pregnant with him and... Um, and was working in the Delta. I was driving back and forth all the time. Had him, healthy, ba best baby. Gosh, he slept at two weeks. He was sleeping six to eight hours. It was fabulous. Now, my oldest still didn't sleep more than four hours. But my baby would sleep. And, um, and so, um, you know, I'm still, I had, I had a C-section on June 24th. And July 5th, I was back on the computer working remotely um, just because I, could, I couldn't stand it. They didn't need me there. I mean, you know, they could make it for a good six or eight weeks. This is your identity. But this is and my you can't identity. Afford, you can't afford some crack in it. You yeah. Know? 
Yeah, I can't, and I can't afford for somebody to be looking at my work, trying to, you know, hold my programs and stuff together while I'm away, and and there be some flaw exposed. Uh oh, chink in the armor. No flaws could be exposed. I I I was so controlling over that, and um and things started to from um. And I'm still, I'm not drinking regularly or anything like that. It's still the girls' weekends. It's still, you know, about every three months I go on a bender for two or three days. Uh, but there was always an excuse. Right. You know, to do that. Well, uh, we're in Destin. It's New Orleans. It's what people do. Well, yeah. And that's where we went. New Orleans, Destin, Orange Beach, live concerts, you know, um, stuff like that. There was always, you know, that's what you do when you're there. Right. And when you're on vacation, you relax. When in Rome. When in Rome. When did things start getting bad? So things started getting bad um, shortly after um, my youngest was born. He was in and out of bats for about the first two years of his life with respiratory issues. Mm. And this was so stressful on me. And again, I'm feeling like a failure as a mom. Like, this is my fault. If I were a better mother, he wouldn't get RSV, that kind of thing. Yeah, yes, he had RSV at six weeks, um, and we were in the hospital for seven several days, and he would have to have the tents on him and um, and things like that. And um, if I didn't travel so much, I would um, I would be a better mom. And um, and so when he's about two and a half, uh, I quit a really really good job. Um, because, and, and I said it was because he was so sick and I needed to be home. I couldn't be on the road anymore. And I went into consulting, which if you have a lot of control issues and you're a high achiever and you go into consulting, guess what happens? You never quit working. Everything is important. I would have five or six clients and I would put in way more hours than I would bill them for. Um, and, um, and everything was important. I stayed in a state of just angst and stress and anxiety, and I called it success. Um, now during this time, um, my husband had lost several jobs because of his addictive behaviors. And, um, and so I'm still the full breadwinner and everything. So going out as a consultant, being a consultant was um, definitely probably not the best move for the family, but I said it was, you know, Um, I said it was. And this is when I go back to school. When my youngest was two and a half, I go back to school uh, for my doctorate. And, um, and so that's the next couple of years, my drinking increased during this. Is this because you had had so much success with scholastic endeavors? Mm -hmm. So you quit a job so you can stay home with your son because he's sick. And then I wonder if you felt some kind of way and you thought, well, I mean, I I don't know that this is like an active thought process you have, but it's probably percolating in the background. Mm -hmm. I don't like this. I need to retreat to what I know makes me feel good and what is successful. That's School. exactly what happened. And yeah. and you're right. It wasn't an active thought process at no, all. I'm convinced we have these, what I call background programs, like on your computer. Yeah. 
Yep. It that, just shows that operate. up. You don't even know it's there. Mm-hmm. It shows up and it's just like, boom, this is what you're going to do next. Yeah. Because like I said, there wasn't, just like with the, the dual masters, there wasn't a big thought, uh, this is what I want to do in five years. And in order to get there, I need this degree. No, it was a, I need to be operating at 150% level of anxiety because that's what's familiar. And that's what gets me the praise. That's what gets me people saying, um, you're amazing. You're amazing. Look at you, super mom. I wish I could do that. I wish I could do that. And at this time, I also was not happy with my weight, and I had gastric bypass surgery. Another thing that a lot of addicts and alcoholics have in common um, is this weight loss surgery. Um, and, um, And when you have this weight loss surgery, it changes your biology and um, intake for sugar, which we know alcohol is loaded with sugar. Sure. And the uptake of alcohol. Um, and, um, and so I lost a ton of weight. And if I, if I showed you some of the pictures, there were, there were pictures. I, I look at them now and I'm going, oh my gosh, you can see like my collarbones and my ribs. And, and look at me. I mean, I'm a, I'm a healthy woman. But you could see my, you know, my chest bones. And, um, um, and that was part of the addiction, too. Um, being unhappy with myself and looking for that quick fix. Now, I'm not going to say having surgery, it was an easy fix or anything like that. I mean, still to this day, I have consequences from it that are very unpleasant. But um, uh, I am grateful to this day for having the surgery for... Um, the leg up it gives me on my high blood pressure and things like that. Um, but it's also, I'm also healthier now. Um, so those two things, you have to think about those two things in tandem. The gastric bypass, because I'm unhappy with the way that I look. I, um, I'm being told by other people that I don't look good. Um, I'm being shamed for being overweight I am being, um, and at this time, I'm also being told by, um, and, and I don't want to throw him under the bus or anything because he's a good guy, but, but my ex-husband used to tell me that I wasn't a good mother when I would, you know, have a glass of alcohol or when I would travel or when I would do all of these things that in my head were good, right? And, right. and, and I'm still being shamed by family members and, and my ex-husband of, we don't have a diagnosis for my oldest at this time. And I'm still saying something's going on with him. How old is he at this time? So he is seven. Okay. Okay. And he is, um, he's seven and he's showing serious signs of depression and anxiety, um, self-injurious behavior. He would go to school, and this was one of the things, because the teachers were telling me nothing's wrong with him either. And he would go to school, and he would excel academically. And he was somewhat social. You know, he could interact with people. Um, but, um, but he would come home, and he would have massive meltdowns. And what I mean by that is um, 
screaming, banging his head against the wall, banging his head against the the bed, um, telling me he wanted to kill himself. This is a seven or an eight year old, y'all, and 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 it was just it was heart wrenching. And again, I was blaming myself, of course, and other people were blaming me too. You know, out of just lack of knowledge, of course, um, even. Um, so I had been having this conversation with the pediatrician for the greater part of four years now and, um, four or five years now. And he sent me to one of his colleagues who basically said that my child had what she calls golden child syndrome, meaning that I spoiled him so much that he acted out. A physician tells me this and, um, and I was devastated. It was devastating. I'm, I'm having all this. And internally what's happening is that horrible, horrible shame spiral that we're all way too familiar with, right? And um, the number of grandmas who said, he just needs a good whooping. I can't, if I had a nickel, I wouldn't have to ever work again for every right. time that was told to me. And so one day he's having his he's having one of his meltdowns, and we're sitting on the stairs of the house, and and he's telling me he's having one of his meltdowns, and I'm I'm holding on to him, and I'm saying, "What is it that you want to do?" He said, "I want." He said, "I'm going to get a knife, and I'm going to stab myself, and then I'm going to jump out the window." He had a plan, and he was ready to execute it at eight years old, and that's when I said, "I am done." F all y'all, I am done with what you say and think. Well, how did you? How did you ever? Where you? You obviously had him diagnosed somewhere. Somebody picked up something. Yes. So, and and it's important to note that right before this incident happened, his grandmother that he was really close to, my my ex husband's mom, passed away from pancreatic cancer, oh. and she went very quickly. She was diagnosed in um, August, and she passed away in December. And, um, and he was a rock to her. Um, he, and, and we still talk about it to this day. He and I both were very close to her. She understood him. She never, um, shamed me. Um, she got it. She understood him. And so he lost the one other person that really got him, you know? And, um, and so the first time we went to a psychologist, and um, he, um, and he diagnosed him with mood disorder, not otherwise specific. NOS. NOS, yeah. because he had just lost his grandmother, and ADHD. And so we get him on ADHD meds, and guess what? Guess what that does to an autistic kid? I don't have any idea. Oh, at least for my autistic kid, made him very aggressive. Ah. Physically aggressive. And, um, and so I'm still knowing this is not my kid, right? And now we've essentially got him on prescription, prescription meth, Yeah, (laughs) you know, which, um, which kept disappearing in my household. Who's getting it? You? No, the ex-husband. Okay. Yeah. Um, I I feel him on that. I probably would have to. Yeah. And, and you know what? I don't, I, I'm not mad about that. I was at the time. But I'm not mad about that. You know, that's part of the disease. And um, 
And so, um, and so I've got these huge problems going on on either side. And uh, so I bucked the whole system at that point because I was trying to follow all the health care advice I was getting from the pediatrician as the primary care provider and the psychologist. And I'm like, this isn't right. This is, I know, I'm an educated woman. I know this isn't right. This is not what is happening to Jack. And so I found an absolutely phenomenal psychiatrist. Um, and he, um, we went through several more months of testing. This poor baby had so many tests. I've got files and files of documentation. And he diagnoses him on the autism spectrum with um, uh, depression and anxiety as access to diagnoses. And, um, and gets him on a regimen of antidepressants, anti-anxieties. And we found a phenomenal therapist that we still go to to this day when we need him. We don't go on a regular basis anymore. Um, that worked with um, Asperger's kids. And, um, and slowly but surely, I start to see my son come out of this this horrible place that we have been in for so many years. And uh, by the sixth grade, uh, when he was 12, so at 12, we still weren't on the right med regime, and, and we were still, quote-unquote, treating him for ADHD. Uh, but he was still aggressive, no matter what kind of med we chose. And, um, and he gets what's called a major in, um, in public school, which means a major offense. Uh, a little girl was trying to help him one day, and he stabbed her with a pencil. Uh-oh. And this is at sixth grade, so they're expected to be way more independent in the sixth grade. He's got 34 kids in his class. Dude is overstimulated. Somebody tells him he's doing it wrong. He reacts, stabs with a pencil. And, um, and I had already been trying to get him an IEP, Um, to get him some services in the school for a couple of years. Um, And the bottom line is public schools and a lot of places are not set up for a kid that can learn and is really intelligent but but is um, not neurotypical, right? And the way I describe it is he's a Mac. We're all PCs, and he's an Apple. You know, he's a Mac. His operating system is just a little different. His, his operating system is is different. But he can operate. He can operate. He can still have Word and Excel and all that. It just operates in the background differently. And and public schools aren't set up to teach that small, you know, the small percentage of kids that operate like that. And, um, and so anyway, in sixth grade, we started looking at trying to find him the right place. And we did. And, uh, and we did. So mother-in-law dies, finally get the right diagnosis, um, aggressive kid at school, finding a new school, and now I'm going through a divorce. It's um, a lot of life stressors. All within a year and a half's time. And, and I didn't realize that, um, like I said, um, before we went live, we were... We were talking about I'm um, um, working with uh, working on the paperwork for Voc Rehab for Jack for when he goes to school, college in the fall, and um, and I'm finding all this paperwork and I'm just now connecting all those dates. 
all of those dates happen within a year and a half. All this big life stress. How does that, how is that affecting you? Well, it's not. I'm super mom. Yeah. I'm super mom. I'm super worker. Um, I'm now working at a state job again. Um, and uh, I'm now working at a state job again. I'm working in child protective services, which I only lasted about 18 months because That's it's, too much. it's really, really hard work. And I was not mentally healthy. And, um, but I'm acting like I am. And uh, I'm acting like I'm mentally healthy. And I'm just pushing through. What I learned growing up is you just push through. You don't, you don't stop to be sad. You don't stop to take care of yourself. You push through and you do more and more and more and more. Because that's what's going to make it better. Rub some dirt on it. Rub some dirt on it. Shake it off. Shake it off. There's a there's a, a Facebook meme that says I died once when I was five and still had to go to school later. Right. Yeah, that was you know, and my sister and I talk about that all the time. That's that's just what we learned. Uh, that was our norm, and um, and so in my head, it's not affecting me. Meanwhile, I'm literally drowning on a daily basis. I am crazy. Um, you know, crazy busy, crazy trying to get kids to extracurriculars. I have, um, you know, my husband was very active in his addiction at the time. And so I'm it, you know, I can't rely on him to do anything. He actually almost burned the house down one day with popcorn during my daughter's sleepover. Um, you know, um, stuff, (laughs) stuff like that was happening just on a regular basis. People are yelling at me about things that he's doing, He's going in and out of jobs. I'm trying to hold everything together. And and I think I'm doing it, right? I'm I'm literally living from one crisis to the next and thinking that I'm succeeding. Um, and I was in nothing but survival mode. So as things started, as the divorce goes through and things start to kind of, we get my, uh, my oldest in a good scholastic environment with a lot of support in a very small classroom. My other two are excelling at everything that they're doing, and things start to, to start to slow down, and I'm still on, you know, go mode. I had no way to calm down at night, and so. And what year is this? This is we're looking at 2016. Okay. Between, between 2015 and 2016, and that's when I started picking up with mommy wine culture. Yeah. You know. All my mom friends, we're going to have a glass of wine and calm down and bitch about all the things that are bothering us. All the things we have to do as moms. So I don't ever miss drinking or drugs, but I do, you know, good Pinot Noir and cheddar cheese is Ooh. one of my. You, you just, you just called it. Yeah. Pinot Noir. Oh, I love it. Love it. Love it. And so nobody picks up alcohol thinking, oh, I want to be an alcoholic. Yeah. Nobody does that. So so I'm having, you know, glasses of wine every night, every night, two or three, nothing big. Um, And it's it's working. I'm able to go to sleep for about two hours. Um, And it's calming me down. And, And it's socially acceptable. All the moms are doing it too. So, but then I start noticing, because I'm very aware of my history. And I'm very aware that there is a genetic component to alcoholism and addiction. 
but I start noticing when I'm with my mom's friends, I'm drinking a hell of a lot faster than they are. And just like you hear people say, we would get up from a dinner table and people would leave half glass. Not you. No. And I'd take the bottle with me if we weren't done. That shit was going with me, you know? Um, And so not me at all. But I very quickly, by 2017, because I went, and this is how I know the dates. Um, 2017, I went to, I went on a bucket list trip with my college girlfriends and I'm talking to my best friend prior to the trip, telling her, I know I have a problem. I'm not trying to get sober, but I know I'm drinking too much. And, uh, and so we made a plan for me to be in Europe and be able to, um, drink, but not just go off the rails drunk, Right. Two to three. She's going to help monitor me. She's going to be my accountability partner. Um, let's just say uh, walking home from some um, restaurants and pubs in Venice, my best friend and I got in a really big fight. I was going to say, because, this is not going <laughs> to. Because I'd had a good two or three bottles of wine. It's a recipe for disaster. Oh, uh, we got in a really, really big fight, and, and rightly so on her, on her part. Um you know, um, but but um, as a normie, you know, she's thinking just put it down, and I'm thinking why can't why can't I put it down? Why you know even on this beautiful trip of a lifetime, why can't I just put it down? I then you can't. got this joy killing harpy that just won't let you have fun. And- yeah, and and f you, I can do one more, and then she gets mad because I just told her to f off. Right, you know. Yeah. Well, at least you didn't Who fall in. Be? At least you didn't fall in the canal. No, thank God. <laughs> <laughs> thank God. <laughs> I hear they're filthy. Uh, yeah, yeah. Disgusting. The, the water is pretty though. It's they they must do something to make it look pretty because you can tell that the water is filthy but pretty at the same time. It's very weird. That is weird. Um, but Venice was always on my bucket list. So, um. So I have this amazing memory of Venice that's also tainted, that's also got this scar on top of it um, because of my addiction. All right. Well, then what happened? So we're about 2017, 2018? So we're about 2017, 2018. I don't want to get sober yet. Um, and I think I think it was in 2015 that my sister got sober, I want to say. and so, Yeah, I was doing the math in my head. So yeah. your mom's already gotten sober. Your sister... It's right around there. It, I think it was, actually, I know it was, now that I'm thinking about it, I know it was 2015 because we lost my mother-in-law in December of 2015. And my sister was at Pine Grove at the time. The family joke was my my husband's cousin um, also struggles um, with addiction. and uh, And so we had to get permission from her parole officer for her to come to Mississippi to the funeral and we had to bust my sister out of pine grove get you know special permission for for her to come up from pine grove for um for the funeral so the now, bad news bears rolling into that funeral home wasn't and it? that was the joke too <laughs> and ankle um, monitors every all the of whole it. nine yards the whole shebang the whole shebang and um and and the whole time i'm not grieving the death of my mother-in-law who 
who was there for me during the years when my mother couldn't be because of her illness. And uh, I'm not allowed to grieve because I got to hold everybody together, right? And so, and and so you see the buildup, yeah, clearly. And so my sister's sober, my mom's sober. Um, and it's like 2018, 2019, you're holding it together. I'm holding it together. Um, but, but I'm in survival mode because now I'm a single mom. Yeah. Now I'm a single mom and, um, and my ex-husband was struggling and I was very codependent, um, to which I named gracious at the time. You know, but there was constant chaos because of that, and um, and there was constant chaos there. And then he gets married, so there's another set of chaos with my kids learning how to live in a blended family, and um, and I'm just steadily drinking, trying to survive, just trying to survive. And I know I have a problem at this time, and I'm openly telling safe people I've got a problem. Um. And so I start trying to do things like I went to Cresilio. I need God. I need Jesus back in my life, which is weird to think about because I'm a preacher's kid, right? But, um, but you know, if I if I just become a better what Christian, was that word you said? Cresilio. I don't think I know what that is. So it's a um, it's a faith based walk with um in the like a walkabout in no, australia it's a weekend. no okay. it's a weekend um it was a weekend out at camp camp bright and green and at the um um uh duncan gray diocese center out there in canton and it's a you immerse yourself in um, say that word one more time the diocese center no 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 the Cresilio. Cresilio. yes and don't ask me what it means because I should know, but I can't remember. Okay. Um, but anyway, it's a um, um, the uh, Methodist denomination does this, the Episcopal denomination does this, and I'm sure there's some others, but I'm not sure who they might be. But it's a weekend in which you go and you reaffirm your faith, and um, you're immersed in the the Bible. Um, all weekend and uh, did that work for you no it didn't fix anything no it didn't fix a thing it didn't fix it I would not trade it for the world though because the experience is amazing and I still draw on that experience in my sobriety today good oh yeah look I'm convinced that our our recovery life is really just uh, I call it, it's my brick wall theory. And so we learn something and we put it in our brick wall. And then pretty soon we have a, you know, a comprehensive view of small tidbits we learned. Yeah, it was, it was probably my first, this isn't even a brick yet. It's that bottom line, the sand foundation that you okay. have to pack down. Sure. Right. So that's Cresilia for me. Gotcha. Um, well, that's nice. Yeah. 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 Because in, in the last, um, five and a half months I've I've learned I've become had a different relationship with the God of my understanding whereas at that time I was trying to um I was trying to go with the God of my understanding that I was brought up with right okay and those are two different things now and and not not that any of what I was brought up with was bad or wrong it's just different now and so I did that. I did therapy. I, I did an IOP, 
And then I went back for another IOP. I kept getting called if out. One is good. Two must be right. And oh, and at different places. Hang on, I think I just did something here. All right, I'm gonna hold it. Can you still hear me? Okay. Yeah, that's perfect. That's okay. Fine. So, um, I did three IOPs. And two masters, a doctorate. And and running the roads because my work. None of it was based in Jackson. All of it was based on the coast and over in Natchez type of area, that sort of thing. And I'm a single mom, so I'm juggling people to pick up my kids. Picking up the kids from school and going to soccer and this, that, and the other. Soccer and baseball and cheer and Lord of the cheer. So much cheer. And then the trips with cheer and the travel ball and the travel soccer. And, uh, and I'm just wearing myself out. And, uh, and so I'm drinking more and more and I'm drinking more and more during the day now. And, um, and so, uh, we're looking at 2021, um, I get fired from a really good job that I really loved, um, working for amazing people who had supported me in my IOP efforts. They had supported me in, you know, they knew I had an addiction and and they were extremely supportive, but I showed up on a Zoom meeting because COVID had hit by this time. Right. And I show up on a Zoom meeting just hammered. Lit w- up. Lit up with physicians there. And the cat filter and everything, just acting a fool. I mean, huh? just <laughs> acting a fool. And so the very next day I got fired. And, um, and I don't know what I'm going to do now. Um, and so, um, and so I start looking at, and I'd already been to treatment at one point. I'd been to treatment in 2020, June of 2020. I went to treatment, um, stayed 30 days and, um, and just could not, I got, I got 73 days after I got out of treatment. I got 73 days before I started drinking again. And, um, and, um, you know, it was, I mean, I just didn't work the treatment program. There were so many distractions. When I went to treatment three days in, I got served with papers that my ex-husband was trying to get custody of the kids. And that monopolized my entire treatment. That was the distraction the whole time, you know. And um, I just didn't take advantage. And I had a therapist tell me at one point, she said, where's your surrender, Anna Lynn? And this whole time, I'm thinking, I've been to treatment, been doing the IOPs. You know, I'm surrendering. Nope. Not really. Not really. I, I, I was still trying to do it Anna Lynn's way. And, and had not figured out that Anna Lynn's way doesn't work at all. Never did. Never did. But because I'd had all this, you know, work success, professional success, my core belief in my brain was that Annalyn's way would work. I just had to find the right way. And, but I had to find the right me way, not the right way that other people were telling me. Right. You know? Oh, I can totally relate. Yeah. So I'm still trying to run the ship and everything, get fired from a job, um, get, um, I wrecked two cars, um, wrecked two cars, 
God protect me. I didn't get a DUI. I should have both times. Um, and, um, and just kept continuing, kept continuing to do that. And then in, uh, on December 2nd of 2022, I was drinking again in the morning. I was supposed to do a presentation at noon for, um, a coworker of mine who's in the program. And I called her. I said, I'm drunk. I can't go do the the program. I got to go to rehab. And um, and I'd already been following Recovery Lab at this time. I'd already bought T-shirts. Like I was, I was in and out of the rooms of AA. Had a sponsor lying to my sponsor the whole time, um, lying to everybody, you know, and um, and uh, and doing nothing but damage to myself and my family, and the relationships that I loved most. So. Um, I tried calling my mom that morning, and she didn't pick up, and I'm just desperate. So I pick up the phone, and I call my friend from um, from high school that I had not talked to in months. I said, I need you. Yeah. I said, um, I said I need somebody to take me to treatment. And she said, and she was over there in 20 minutes, and she said, I will do anything for you. And she did. Um, I drank the whole way. <laughs> um, drank the whole way and passed out. <laughs> They actually had to um, call the paramedics because when I got out there, I was so drunk they couldn't wake me up. And um, they called the paramedics. Well, with the paramedics comes a sheriff. And um, the sheriff's deputy that came out, and this is why I get so emotional because this is a God thing. Um, They said that they had never seen this deputy before. This is the deputy that just a couple of months ago had worked the wreck um, and um, and allowed me to go home, allowed somebody to come pick me up and go home because I was drunk. Um, and um, he comes out and he sees that it's me and he is so grateful I'm there. And he says, you don't remember me, do you? And I said, no. He said, this is when we met and um, because I'm awake now. He says, this is when we met, and I am so glad you're here and that you're getting better. And um, um, so that was December 2nd, 2022, and I think that gives me, what, 143 days now? I don't know. Uh, I'd have to check my, my ticker on my phone, but um, but um, during that time, I had... Um, I had been going to AA every day, and um, but in my brain, every time I heard that word um, suggested, I was thinking, well, I can still do it the way I want, right? Right. And on December 2nd, something just clicked and said, you can't do it the way you want anymore. Yeah, we, we somehow yeah. overvalue our abilities. Yeah. And yep. And, God, that was the best gift that gift of desperation. So I went into um, I went into treatment. My mom didn't know I was there. My kids were at school; they didn't know I was there. Um, and so I created a big old mess, big old mess. Um, well, that's a good mess to have created. But and I think they would agree with you. Yeah, I I think they would agree with that. Um, and so, um, but that's when. I learned to surrender. 
because I went in and I said, I don't, I don't want to do this anymore at all. I will do whatever y'all tell me. I will do whatever it takes. And that's how I approached it this time. And um, Desperation really is a gift it when really we can get it. It really is. It really is. And, and that was where I was. I am in, and that one gift has led, that gift of desperation, within 24 hours, the next gift I had was that my current employer was so supportive. And yes, Annalyn, you do whatever you need. And it was because I didn't try and lie about it. Hey, this is this is what I need. This, this is it. Yeah. This is it. Now, I will tell you, I'm saying this, and then you know, my first meeting with the therapist and the um, uh, and the the center was, um, of course, one of the first things they talk about is your length of stay. And I was like, I'm just here to detox. Yeah. I I got to get back to my life. I'm just here to detox. I'm too important to be. And I know what to do. I, I literally said that. I know what to do. I just I need to be away from alcohol so that I can get, oh, I left out a pretty important part. So between the two years of one rehab to the next, you know, I'm, I am trying to work a program my way, of course. But I'm also realizing that I have just an organic anxiety that is not being treated. It's not, I've tried yoga, I've tried meditation, I've, you know, and, and that was everybody's. And so I'm realizing that part of the reason I'm, I'm self-medicating, big time self-medicating. And, uh, and everybody tries to give me such helpful advice like yoga and meditation and all that. And those things are fabulous, but not when there's a chemical imbalance in your brain that needs adjustment you know and um and so I'm self-medicating the whole time and um and and knowing this is a huge problem knowing I'm going to lose more jobs uh knowing I'm going to get that DUI knowing that I'm going to you know all of the things that I haven't gotten yet I'm about to and I'm knowing this in my head and so I start fighting for myself as hard as I fought for my son when my son needed the right diagnosis, I started fighting as hard for myself. And that was one of those layers under the brick wall. And I start, um, uh, shout out to Carver Brown, called Carver. And I said, dude. Who who could not like oh Carver God. Brown? I was like, I am effing up all over the place. Tell me what to do. And he connected me with a phenomenal resource because he recognized that I needed uh, grief and trauma therapy. I didn't know I needed that. And I'm a social worker with a doctorate, right? I'm supposed to be able to recognize that myself. No, not at all. And, uh, and so he connected me with some really fabulous resources. And, and my therapist asked me, um, just last week, she was like, you've made such great progress in the last six months. She said, How, what do you attribute that to? And I said, well, last summer, um, it was the retreat, the women's retreat for grief and trauma. I went out, 
I didn't know a soul there, scared out of my mind, um, but I just knew I needed it. Carver said I needed it. If Carver said I needed it, um, he, he's, I will risk I'm, believing him. Yes, and and that started the foundation. So it's actually actually Carver that recognized a lot of what I needed. Um, I'm guessing because he may have some experience, strength, and hope back there. And um, and he got me sent on the right path. So I started with this grief and trauma therapist, and I start fighting for my mental health. Even though I want to give up, I'm fighting for my mental health. And um, and through this, I was connected to another physician that, um, through this whole process, I was connected to another physician that believed me when I said, I am self-medicating for anxiety. I have untreated organic anxiety. Not just the, are you nervous one day? You know, the, the type of anxiety that cripples you, puts you in panic attacks, you can't breathe. And, um, and so, and they listened to me. And I started getting a little bit better because I was getting the right meds. But I hadn't started, I haven't stopped drinking at this point. Um, and anybody that knows anything about mental health meds, um, anti-anxieties, antidepressants, they take a couple of weeks to kick in. And you really can't use substances while you're trying to get them to kick in. Mm, doesn't help. And so on December 2nd, that was the realization I'd come to that day was that I needed to give up because and give my and give and trust my life over to those that could help me get the right medications for, you know, it says in the, the big book, um, in AA, we read this passage that said there are those of us that have grave mental health disorders that are able to recover if they're willing to be honest with themselves. And I definitely have grave mental health disorders, but I was willing to take an honest look at myself. And that willingness. Well, I always think it helps. Yeah. You know, it's hard to get a baseline for those things when you are in active addiction. Yeah. And, and, and nobody could. And the well, only, we don't, we never yeah. get sober long enough to. I could stay. I could go without drinking for about three days, and the brain science shows that that third day, that's when your brain starts telling you you can't survive unless you have another drink or another right. hit, right? And and so I could go a good three days. Um and uh and you know and I've ruined familial relationships, friendship. I've lost friends at this point, and. And I hit um, an emotional rock bottom, just bankrupt, you know, and um, and and I just I was laying on my floor in my living room, in between the coffee table and my couch, and which is a space smaller than this, just screaming, "God, tell me what to do," and um, and God said, "God told me pick up the phone." find a place, get sober so your meds can start working, and you'll be okay if you trust me in this. And, um, and, I'm, I, and I'm drunk, but God's speaking to me. And I could have the clarity, um, and this is 9 o'clock in the morning too, and, um, but I could have enough clarity to pick up the phone and call places to help. And um, can I say the name of the... 
the place I went? Does it matter? Oh, I don't think so. So I pick up the phone and I called to find a wellness where I'd been in 2020. And, and I said, I got to have help. And, um, and, uh, the guy's name was Brian. And, and so he checked my insurance. In the meantime, I'm packing a bag, which, um, I've been told was one of the most well-packed bags for somebody who was as drunk as I was. Um, and, and I'm packing a bag cause I'm going, I'm, I'm going to do this. And I'm trying to find somebody to give me a ride. And Brian calls me back. He says, I'll send an Uber for you. Don't worry about a thing. We got you. You're, you're doing what's right. Um, so my friend Amy takes me out to define a wellness. We have the whole situation with the cop that I told you about that, um, and, and the nurse told me, um, that it was just a moment when, when I, it clicked with me who he was, the cop was, and they said it was just a moment. Everybody took, took their breath away. And, um, and so they get me, I go to detox and of course, I'm telling them at this time, I'm just there for detox. About two days in, I'm like, yeah, y'all just tell me what to do. I'm going to be here. Yeah. I'm going to be here. Then the subject of Christmas comes up. And I was like, nope, I'll sign out AMA. Week later, I'm like, no, I'll be there for Christmas. That's what I need to do. If if that gives me 50 more Christmases with my kids, I'll, I'll I'm here. I'm here. And so I gave myself completely to, um, uh, to the treatment center and to their hands. I did everything they told me to do. Um, and, um, and made, made a lot of progress because of that surrender, that just absolute surrender that had eluded me for six years now, completely eluded me. Um, and because of that, made tremendous progress. That tenacity that serves us so well in, in many ways just yeah. ends up being this crippling force where we just won't give up. Yeah. and uh, But it was also that tenacity that I just I dove into giving up. And what an amazing... You're going to be the best surrenderer that's ever been. <laughs> I didn't know it at the time. I will surrender better than anybody. <laughs> better either. than anybody else. But um, that wasn't the goal. That wasn't what I was thinking, though. It was just what I was thinking was, I am so fucking tired. I yeah. am tired. Y'all tell me what to do. I don't want to do My this My life is anymore. not what I want. This is not what I want. Y'all show me. I see what I want. Other people have it. Show me how to get there. And that was my whole attitude. Um, and, um, and they saw it. I didn't necessarily see it in myself, but they did because the, the director, um, came to me and he was like, we think you're ready for a day pass. Uh Oh, party guess, time. Guess who got to stay with her kids for Christmas? Cause what? I was ready for a day pass. I did the not The universe party. rewarded you. You surrendered properly and the universe rewarded you. Apparently. I, you know, I just think surrender, surrender, surrender. Just give up. Just give up. That was, that was the magic. That was the magic. And I, and, and I got so many magic spots during treatment that have carried over into, um, being out of treatment. Um, (laughs) 
Because they said, well, we can draw on yeah. those minor victories. Yeah, and and because they said, well, alien discharge plan. What do you want to do? You want to go to IOP? Hell no. <laughs> I've been there, done that several times. That did not work for me, y'all. Um, and and that goes to show you. And, and I'm not dissing IOP at all. It's fabulous. Um, I just knew that what I was doing when I was going to to IOPs is I was doing the same thing I would do with my work life, right? Throw everything into it and and be the best at the best at the best and check all the boxes and make everybody think I was doing the right thing and looking the right way. And then after IOP at 9 o'clock at night, I'd go home, crack open a bottle of wine. And so I... Through this last um, stint in treatment, I knew myself well enough to know that if I put the pressure on myself to be everything, to be everything recovery, that I would end up right back where I was. And so instead, we came up with a really strong, um, a really strong plan, aftercare plan that continued my trauma work. Uh, that I continue to this day, every week, and um, continued my medication and my mental health work. And the best two things I learned in treatment is that no is okay. And I don't know is okay. Setting boundaries. I learned how to set a boundary. I had no clue. I didn't know what boundaries were. I had no clue. But yeah, I was run. I was running boundaryless my entire life, and um, that's a gift. And that's a gift that that as I learn better boundaries, I can also um, teach my employees, uh, the people that I supervise. You can carry the word. So I can carry. I can carry the word. The message. The message to to non-addicts and to you know to normies and and to anybody if i practice these principles in all my affairs man i'm just a better person in general it doesn't mean i don't in make general it doesn't mean i don't make mistakes just, yeah it's Oof. not just limited to recovering yeah well look, how cool we, is that we have exceeded the boundaries here oh i believe it because i'm a talker like i'm trying to find the clock on there yeah we've gone an hour and 40 minutes holy cow i know i told you it goes by fast are you going to be able to like edit this down <laughs> no we don't do any editing at Y'all all don't uh-uh. well can i say just a minute about hope yeah go ahead that's what i would like to do because i fought so hard to stay in addiction when i thought i was trying to get out that um you know, I've heard so many people say, well, if I can get sober, you can too. And I truly believe that. And um, the the gifts of sobriety, for me, my hope is living out loud. That's what I'm doing different this time that I didn't do before. Living out loud. And just telling people that, hey, I am a woman in recovery and that's okay. And Look, we, I love We're going to talk about it. We're going to talk about it. I love it. I think the more of us that are you know, just open and honest and not bashful to share our stories. How can that be bad? How how can it be bad to make recovering 
normal. Yeah, and and uh, there was a gal I was talking to at a cheer competition, and um, she said something about going to get a drink, and I said, now I'm sober now. Uh, I said, I don't drink anymore, is what I said. And she said, tell me about that. And what she gleaned, and she told me this, she's, what she gleaned from the conversation was she doesn't care it, that, that I don't care if she drinks or not. If she wants to be shown the path uh, that's worked for me one day, that she knows I'm there for. The, you, look, we can How be cool. Is we that? can be bricks in other people's brick walls. How cool is that? Yeah, y'all, you and Daniel and other y'all are definitely bricks in um in my wall, big bricks. Well, we appreciate that. Thank yeah. you. Y'all are and and you were before I went to treatment. You were during treatment. That's the first time you and I met face to face. Right. And um, and I'm so grateful for your stories and what y'all do to give back. It's just. It's insane how it helps me on a definitely a weekly basis. You know, well, we if, appreciate I don't catch it. It, if I don't catch it live, I'm I'm gonna be listening Thank at you. some other point. And um let me give one quick shout out to Rolling Fork in the Delta. So we have a mutual friend that you don't know about, Ellen. Oh yeah. And I was I was when you said Rolling Fork, I thought, is it Drick? Is it <laughs> So she did a fundraiser for Rolling Fork with this T-shirt that I have on. It says the Delta versus everybody. And a high school friend of mine posted it on Facebook. I bought the T-shirt because, you know me, I like to I like to support your homies, support my homies. And so we did a, a Whole Foods parking lot exchange. And I told her, I said, I'm going to wear this to recover that. She goes, oh, you listen to that? I said, I'm going to be on it. And she was like, it's like we know each other already. I know. So, shout out to Ellen. Hey, Ellen. Love you, girl. So, we worked at Lemuria for a a while, Uh a a lifetime ago. Yep. Yep. I just met her, but she's my new friend. Oh, yeah. Love it. Gave me your phone number immediately. I even know. I I knew her dad before. Uh Uh-huh. Have you met Drick yet? Uh -uh. He's he's certainly a treat. Mm -hmm. Hey, Drick. Hope you're listening. All right. Well, look, that's it. Daniel, I'll be glad you. to have you back next week because the pressure is on me with all this electronic. <laughs> thank you all so much. Look, thank you for taking your time to come do this. Oh my gosh, thank you for taking we're, so much we're time. We're indebted with me. to you. No, I'm all right. indebted to y'all. Everybody, we're out. Love y'all. That should be making noise. I broke. Forget it. All right, I was scared to let this go.